0: A party in Vegas? With your fellow craft beer professionals? How could it get better? Oh yeah, first drinks on us. Register now to attend CBP's Welcome to Vegas Party to kickstart your craft brewers conference week at craftbeerprofessionals.org slash vegas dash rsvp. See you there! All right. Hey, everyone. My name is Butch Brightnell, and I want to thank Andrew for uh, for allowing me to present to everyone. I can't really see how many folks are in here. I was looking for a count here, but people can join late or whatever. But the topic of my conversation today is common to all small businesses, but um, I'm trying to tailor as much of it to breweries as I, breweries as I can. Um, but really, the topic is about all of the legal pitfalls that can really hammer a small business and cause uh problems for the small business that you don't anticipate and can really be the risk can be mitigated through uh proper planning and just thinking through the issues and ahead of time Um, (laughs) As I always say, when uh, my, you know, friend, my non-lawyer friends make lawyer jokes and so forth, my common retort, I, I don't take it too personally, but my common rejoinder is it's all fun and games until you actually need one. And then all of a sudden it's the most serious thing in the world. And the purpose of our discussion here today is to try to avoid getting into those situations where you get, which would cause you to actually appreciate a lawyer to bail you out of a big problem uh, so you can continue to make um, lawyer jokes with reckless abandon. Um, my background, I'm with Crenshaw, Warren, Martin. Crenshaw, Warren, Martin is a boutique business uh, law firm in Norfolk, Virginia. We have lawyers that are members of the bar in Virginia, DC, um, Maryland, and North Carolina. Um, so, while our practice is focused on Virginia, we have a three-state coverage in terms of our ability to practice and a really huge network. So if somebody is joining this from Colorado or from California or from New York or wherever, I have a really extensive network. And if you had an issue and needed someone, I would be happy to refer you to someone that is in the industry that could help you with whatever issues come up. Uh, we are state-bound. The the law the legal profession is kind of weird like that. It's very... Uh, insular and protected by uh, state bars. So there's no such thing as a lawyer that can do all 50 states. Maybe there's somebody who's a member of all 50 state bars, but I doubt it. Uh, most people are a member of sometimes three. I'm a member of two state bars now. Um, so um, my background, so I'm with Crenshaw Warren Martin. Uh, check us out, cwm-law.com. Andrew is going to drop our uh, firm website into the chat or into the comment somewhere. Um, and uh, prior to that, I worked for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization as a business lawyer, procurement contracts, employment law, all the normal stuff. Uh, the, the organization kind of behaved partly like a public body and partly as a private body. So a lot of my experience is directly transferable to business. I dealt with uh, buy side transactions all the time, uh, mostly in tech, but some in like construction, things like that as a general counsel for about eight years. Prior to that, I was 22 years in the U.S. Marines. 15 of the years of that was as a lawyer. Most of that was in litigation and the stuff that you see in the movies um, dealing with the deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, Before that, I drove tanks in the Marine Corps. I was an M1A1 Abrams tanker for about five years before I switched over to being a lawyer. The Marine Corps made me an offer I couldn't refuse. They offered me to go to the uh, to pay for me to go to law school, I said yes to that, and uh, it was pretty good, pretty good deal. Um, so I took that. So I want to talk about a handful of things today. First thing a business is, well, it's a lot of things, but really at its core, a business, a brewery, a car dealership, um, um, a cleaning service, um, a bank, a brokerage, whatever. A business is really nothing more than a collection of contracts. Um, it's but that is the value of a business. The value of a business business's ability to, to form contracts. When you serve a beer across the counter, that's a contractual um, transaction. It's a microtransaction, right? There's no written agreement. You, you walk up, you form an oral agreement to for someone to serve you a beer and for you to pay for that beer. Uh, the terms are, I will serve you a beer at industry standard temperature of the of this variety that we have available. And in return, you will pay us the listed uh, fee plus any optional gratuity that you want. That's a micro transaction. That is a tiny little contract, um, almost completely unenforceable at law because it would it's a $5, $7, $10 transaction. Uh, so nobody's going to enforce that. But the te- technically it is a contract. Why? Because Contracts in all 50 states, DC, and Puerto Rico require three elements, which we inherited from the English uh, many years ago: an offer, and the offer is the beer listed on the board um, at the brewery with the price beside it. Acceptance: your order of that beer. Hi, I would like a 20-ounce um, serving of your Italian Pilsner, please. Whatever it's called, um, the one at our, my favorite local brewery here, Elation, and don't called that's a More. Um, So I'd like a 20 ounce um, glass of that's a more, please. Um, And the consideration, I will pay you the fee that you have asked for, for that beer. We now have a contract for the sale of one beer. Okay, cool. That's the deal. Offer acceptance and consideration. Expand the scope of that out to a lot of your suppliers. You've got You've got, as if you're running a brewery, you've got all kinds of contracts you need to worry about. You need to worry about um, hop suppliers. You need to worry about new kegs. You might need to worry about buying new kettles. You might need to worry about um, uh, equipment for your distribution, um, bar stools, taps, refrigerators, um, all these things. So you're going to have vendors that are selling things to you, and some of those might not be inconsequential. They're not $5 beers, but you're talking about laying $10, 20 $30, 50000 out for a certain thing, for a certain supply, offer acceptance and consideration. The practice tip that I offer to you is that um, when, you're, when you are negotiating, it is helpful to do so in writing, and it's helpful to be clear about the terms. So if a vendor offers you, makes an offer to sell you something. And then you start negotiating. Make sure that it's clear that you're you have not are not yet in the acceptance stage yet. If a vendor offers you a um, let's say a vendor offers to sell you three kettles at I don't know I don't know what a, I don't know what a kettle costs. Let's say they cost ten thousand dollars. I don't know, I'm guessing he's going to sell you three kettles at ten thousand dollars. Thirty thousand dollars is his offer to sell you these three kettles. He's going to deliver them, install them for that amount. Of- amount of money don't laugh at me I don't know if that's too much or too little but let's say that's a representative price um and then you say oh that's a little steep for my blood um I don't think that that these kettles are worth that um I would rather pay eight thousand dollars for them and you deliver and I do self-installation okay you're you've you that's a counter-offer you're still not at the acceptance stage yet. You haven't accepted anything. So be clear all along until you reach a meeting of the minds. That's the that's the archa- archaic term from contract clause, meeting of the minds, that you have offer and acceptance on the same terms. And you both understand those terms. In my view, I'd like to say you can never get too precise. You can. It can, it can devolve into minutiae that's really just not worth your extra time. But um, it is very important to make sure that the most material terms that threaten the vitality of the contract are mutually understood by both. And it's really important to clarify those. Don't leave ambiguity in your contracts if you can help it. it all that does is produce, at best, it produces uh, bad will and a ruined relationship with the vendor. At worst, it can produce really expensive and time-consuming litigation. Is anybody? Are you going to sue each other over a $2,000? Uh, price difference in a kettle times three, six thousand dollars. You're almost getting to the point where it's worth it to get into litigation. Litigation costs money, so you have to, and and it's not a sunk cost, right? I mean, you have to consider. Everybody thinks that because I have a contract, we have an ironclad obligation. Well, yes, but in in order to in order to in order to receive the benefit of a contract, it has to be. um, It has to be worth it for you to enforce it. And litigation costs money. It costs lots of money. So you have to be, you have to, it really has to, the value of a transaction has to reach a threshold that there's so much at stake that it's worth uh, going to war over. Really, most contracts are really enforced through walking away and not doing business. And having reputation suffer in the marketplace and so forth, that's at least as an effective mechanism for contract enforcement as suing someone. Everybody wants to rush to court. Um, Sometimes negotiation is a much better way to do it. Um, Even as a lawyer, we make more money if we litigate, but I seek on behalf of my clients to avoid litigation wherever we can, because it's not in the client's best interest to litigate. We will litigate if it comes down to it. And I've got some cases right now where we have um 11 15 20 million dollars at stake we're gonna litigate over that stuff sometimes they settle but that's enough to at least put the money behind it in order to at least pose that you're litigating and put out a credible threat of litigating most of your most of your um, disputes don't end that way the second thing I want to talk to you about with uh contracts is statute of frauds write that down it's an important thing. Statute of frauds It is now lit. in the old days. It wasn't actually a statute. It wasn't written down. It was a common law. Um, oddly, it was referred to as statute of frauds, but it was a common law concept, which means it was kind of like um, like like an oral saga passed down where the law is written in, in court decisions and passed down through court decisions rather than being enacted by a legislature. In Virginia, for example, the statute of frauds is actually a statute. Uh, The General Assembly at some point in the past decided we're going to take the statute of frauds and we're going to actually make it into a real statute. Uh, In Virginia, is contract is required to be in writing for the sale of real estate, and that's true in most states. I can't even think of a state that I know of where a contract for the sale of real estate can be oral. Um, In I think in all 50 states, real estate it has to be in writing, and in Virginia uh, it applies also to sale of goods for over $500. So you must have a contract, contract in writing for the sale of goods over five hundred dollars. Anything other contract, contracts for services, contracts for the sale of goods less than five hundred dollars can be a verbal agreement, um, and they and they can be valid. A, a verbal contract can be valid in certain circumstances. The problem is in the proof, right? The a, the part of the beauty of a written contract is there's not a whole. Sometimes, most of the time, if the contract is written artfully or written competently, you eliminate the issue with um, you eliminate the issue with with having to prove up what the terms of the contract were um, my email is all popping in <laughs> at the same time so if you're hearing that that's what that is it's more work more business for me so that's good um, so uh it, it's if the contract is written artfully then you don't have disputes over what is meant what was intended by the by the um by the parties. That can get away from lawyers and people who are negotiating contracts. Sometimes they can still be written with ambiguity. Sometimes they're written purposefully with ambiguity to allow um, to allow room for in-flight negotiations and so forth. But generally you want specificity. It is really, really hard to prove and enforce an, an oral contract. It really comes down to one person's word against the other and whether you have any other corroborating evidence that can show um, that the oral contract is what you say it is. Where this often comes up is in contracts for services. Very often, um, construction or improvements, things like that, will be um, oral contracts. I, I don't like it. I, I, if someone is going, if you're going to spend, you know, twenty thousand dollars to resurface your um, your parking lot, or if you're going to spend ten thousand, well, that's good. If you're going to spend, I don't know, some amount of money for some service an IT service or something like that, there should be a written contract. It shouldn't be, you shouldn't be oral and you should insist on a written contract. And if the vendor doesn't wanna do a written contract, there's probably a reason for that. And I would at least, I would give that, um, I would look at at that with a little bit of a jaundiced eye. Anytime somebody in business doesn't want to do something that is normally an industry standard, there's a reason for that. And you should be looking for what that reason is. Um, And it can introduce a lot of uncertainty in your business planning. Second thing I wanna talk about is this concept called, Premises liability, um, personal injury lawyers get the worst reputation. They call you know ambulance chasers, uh, dog bite uh, lawyers, slip and falls. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, countries that don't have this system in place, it can be pretty dangerous. So I lived in Germany for three years, and they don't have the same kind of um, of litigation culture that we have here in the United States. And the truth of the matter is German society is more is more dangerous than American society. You go to, a, um, for example, you can go to a, a, an amusement park or something like that. Amusement parks in America are engineered for safety. There's no you're just not going to get hurt at American amusement park, except in the most rare circumstances. Maybe if somebody stands up on a ride or something, but then it's their fault. Um so forth. But in Germany, they just don't have that kind of stuff. And they don't engineer to the same degrees of safety that we do because they don't have the same litigation culture driving them to do that. So like for better or for worse, we have a sort of a lit- litigation culture here. The the uh, three categories of folks who can incur injuries while they're on your premises um, are called trespassers, licensees, and invitees. And there's really, really um Um, How you treat each one of them and how you protect each one of them is is wildly different. So it established a liability of plaintiff. A person who's suing you has to show the property owner, you, your brewery, breached a legal duty owed to the plaintiff. And the legal duty owed to the plaintiff is different depending on which category the person is in. Plus, they have to prove an injury. Just because you fall, if I fall in your brewery but I don't get injured, I don't have a cause of action because I've got nothing, there's nothing to compensate for. If I fall inside of your brewery and uh, as a customer, and I slip and break my leg in two places, and I'm in enormous pain And in in six months of uh, medical bills and pain and suffering, I do have a cause of action and I'm probably going to sue or at least file a claim against your insurance. I may not need to sue if I can reach a reasonable settlement with your insurance. But the only reason insurance pays is because of the threat of litigation, right? So if I'm injured, and there's no breach of duty, there's no recovery. Or if there's no injury, there's no no recovery. In terms of the legal duty owed to these three categories of people, trespassers, licensees, and invitees. Trespassers are people who have no right to be on your property whatsoever. Uh, people that you barred from the premises. So a problem customer who comes in and he causes trouble or something like that, and you say, yep, that's it, you're barred. Uh, you're barred from the premises. Uh, if you're going to bar someone from the premises, it's really good to do it in a formal way. Send them a letter that says you are no longer welcome in these premises. Because if you need to, if you need to enforce that at some point, you need to have show that you put them on notice of the fact that they can't come back to your premises to your place. So if you could have a you could have a barring letter right behind the bar that you sign in hand to the person, uh, it would be great if you have that on your closed circuit video so that you can show that the letter was was delivered. Then there's no question that the person knows that they're not allowed to come back to your premises. People who break in after hours, burglars. Um, the people who intrude not intending to be customers, for example, like a protester or something like that. Let's say that you have a brewery that takes some weird social position and protesters come onto the premises for the purposes of, of uh, protesting the social position. Andrew and I were talking about a local brewery uh, here in Hampton Roads in, in Norfolk, in fact, that had some problems, some culture problems a couple of years ago. Uh, there were no protests against them, but the social media backlash against this brewery was pretty intense for a little while, based on some um, basically kind of bro culture stuff in the warehouse and things like that. Um, some, poor, some alleged poor treatment of women um, and so forth. If a women's group had showed up to protest the way that those women were being uh, treated in the workplace, um, good on them. That's great. But if they came onto the premises uninvited, not for the purpose of business, but for the purpose of protesting, they would be trespassers for that purpose. You owe them no duty whatsoever. And whatever happens to them, you're not liable. OK, the second is licensees. This is uh, the porridge is not too hot. The porridge is not too cold. This is trespassers. The porridge is too hot. Licensees are kind of like the middle. Um people who enter the property for their own convenience or benefit with the knowledge and consent of the owner. Classic case of a licensee is a vendor. So the vendor's not there as a customer. The vendor's not there as a trespasser. The vendor is there to sell you something. He's there to sell you kegs or new refrigerators or cleaning supplies or whatever things that you buy that vendors show up to your brewery, right? They're there for their own benefit. That you may have invited them in in order to sell you their products, but they're also there for their own their own economic benefit. They are there to sell you their product at a profit, right? So you only have a duty to warn them of dangerous conditions of which you have knowledge or notice. So let's say that uh, you had a flood in your warehouse because a cleaning uh, hose, you had a you know, water line that you use for cleaning and that broke and you got water two inches deep in your warehouse. And that warehouse is also where the vendors usually come through. You have a duty to warn. You have actual knowledge of the fact that you have a small flood in your warehouse. And until you can clean that up, you need to put out you know wet floor, don't go here, actual barriers and so forth. And that'll protect you from liability with both licensees and invitees. Theoretically, if a trespasser went pl- plowing into your uh, flooded warehouse and falls down, theoretically you owe them no legal duty and so they couldn't recover against you. Um, but you know, if they can articulate a reason why they were there lawfully, they might try to convince, them, convince a judge that they are licensees. So it's best to protect yourself from injury, even against trespassers because the, again, you want to avoid, you You don't want to create a condition where you're litigating over anything because even if you win, litigation is expensive. Even if you win, you lose. Uh, unless you have an insurance policy that pays your litigation costs, even if you win, you lose because you've paid five or $10,000 just to eliminate the issue, which you could have eliminated through proper business planning um, and you know physical safety and having a plan for people to visit and, and how to keep them away from the hazards inside of a brewery. A brewery is not as, as hazardous, I guess, as a you know construction site where bricks can fall or wheelbarrows can fall off buildings and so forth, but it's probably more hazardous than an insurance office, right? Things are moving, things are hot, things are cold, whatever. It can be uh, things fall over. Um, so it is a, I don't know, what if you call it, a medium hazard place, uh, and you do have an interest in protecting people from those. The third highest category of duty is an invitee. This is someone to whom the owner has extended an invitation. Uh, premises are open to the public, and the visitor enters for the purpose for which the premises are open. Obviously, this is your customers, right? So, your customers, you owe the highest duty to invitees. Um, you, you don't. It's more than just a duty to warn them. It's almost an absolute duty to protect them. Uh, so, you should, if you are, the worst thing that can happen is for a customer to get. It, well, the worst thing that can happen is for a customer to get injured on your premises. The second worst thing that can happen will be a vendor to get uh, injured on your premises. Both of them are really, really bad for your reputation, right? Nobody wants to go to a brewery where people are getting hurt and God forbid it happened twice. Uh, your place will uh, will develop a reputation for being an unsafe place to go and have a beer. But invitees, you, you almost have an absolute duty to protect them from harm. Um, you owe them a duty, a breach of the duty because the breach of the duty is basically a standard of ordinary negligence. Did you do something or fail to do something that an ordinarily prudent person would have done? Um, so uh, I don't know, you know, really slippery wax on your, um, on your tap room floor or something like that. Most people would not put really, really slippery wax on their tap room floor knowing the customers are going to come in there. In fact, it might be smarter for you to put down non-skid in your tap room floor uh, to prevent that. And you, and, and you as a brewery, Owner can show that you're taking affirmative steps to keep your um, to keep your your um, to keep your customers and your licensees, your vendors safe. It's best not to think of these as clear categories. I know I presented them as categories, but really as points on a continuum, because a licensee can quickly become an invitee, or a trespasser might be quickly become an invitee. Um, So don't really think of them as clear-cut categories because it's not clear which category they fall into until after you get to court sometimes. So here's an example. You have a vendor who delivers supplies, clearly a licensee, but you're his last stop of the day. And after finishing the delivery, he's now off the clock and he enters your tap room for a beer. The owner's dog, your dog, spooked by a large noise in the warehouse, unexpectedly bites him. Is he a licensee? Is he an invitee? Um, so if he's a licensee, you only have a duty to warn him of dangerous conditions of which you have knowledge or notice. Well, I don't know. Has your dog ever bit anyone before? Has he ever shown aggressive tendencies? Um, was this a totally unexpected, uh, occurrence for the dog? Does it even really matter? Um, you don't really want to go to court to have to try to defend that. So it's best to avoid that to begin with. If he's an invitee, the history of the dog, um, history, the dog's aggressive history may not matter at all, because you have an almost an absolute duty to protect the person. So, um, uh, Andrew, I had these cool <laughs> uh, Instagram links of like uh, um, safety fails, but I don't really have a way to. I wish I would rehearsed this with you because I don't really have a way to show them. Um, on near you can imagine everybody's seen the the fails. One of them is called. Uh, um fail nation or something like that and there's another one that's uh the craziest safety things that construction people do you like seeing construction guys taking these outrageous and unreasonable risks. um so take another one a patron drink, uh, drinking in your tap room he's clearly an invitee he's there for the purpose for which you're open for business he has too many uh too too many beers he's been overserved and we're going to talk about dram laws in just a second but He's been uh been overserved and passes out in an obscure area of your brewery. He he's he's walking around looking for the bathroom. He instead of finding the bathroom, he walks into a broom closet while he's in there. Drunk people do what drunk people do. He sits down to smoke a cigarette or something like that and he falls asleep. All right. Um he wakes, you lock up and leave. You're walking around, you don't see anybody else left in the tap room. You're closing the tap room down for the night. You didn't think to check the broom closet because why would somebody be in the broom closet? Of course not. So you didn't check the broom closet. He wakes up, freaks out in a drunken stupor, and breaks through your front front door to get out, cutting himself badly in the process. I know this sounds like silly. Is it these, if if you own a brewery for or any business for any couple of years, go find somebody. If you've not had something like this happen, talk to other people about the weirdest thing that's happened in their business. And I'll bet you, you get stories that go far beyond my little, my tame uh, um, hypotheticals here. People do the craziest stuff. Uh, And none of this is unforeseeable. It is not unforeseeable. A drunk guy would fall asleep in your broom closet. While he's think about it, that is not a crazy thing for a drunk guy to get lost in your brewery, looking for the bathroom, walk into a broom closet, and fall and and pass out. It's way crazier things have happened. So, um, so you know, what duty do you? Is he a trespasser? Well, he wasn't when he was there in your premises, right? How's is he a trust, Did you convert him? Is he a trespasser? Because he stayed past the invitation. The invitation is everybody has to leave it closing. And everybody knows that when they walk in. All businesses operate like that. You don't get to stay past closing. Right. But are you at fault? Did you convert him? Did you keep him in the category of invitee by not checking the room closet? Maybe. I don't know. Again, this is not something you want to litigate. Did you know he was drunk and didn't take steps to get him into an Uber to get home? So the categories and duties owed to these people can blend and they're not all that clear. No matter what, you're going to have to litigate the issue and you're going to have to make sure, claims against your insurance, which is going to drive your insurance costs higher. So no matter what, it is important for you. I wouldn't. It's not your foremost concern. Your foremost concern is making good beer and uh, and. Uh, and, and grooming a culture in your brewery that makes people want to come there uh, and grooming a customer base that you want in your brewery. You want that chill vibe in your brewery. That's why people open breweries, because they're chill places to go. If I wanted a sports bar, I'd go to a sports bar. That's not why I go to a brewery. I go to a brewery to sit around the fire outside and have a beer and, and be, in, you know, be in the weather and so forth. So um, that's your foremost concern. But closely by, speaking of fires, let's say you have a fire. You have a fire pit outside. That's a that is a known hazard for invitees. Sometimes people bring their children. We all know that, you know, I look I read some of the blogs and so forth. One of the things that brewery owners complain about all the time, like many business owners. And I hear you. I get it. I have I, I have kids. They're not little kids now. They know how to act. My youngest is 14. But when they were younger, when we went into a public place, I didn't let them just do whatever because I regarded that as an adult space. Um, and so the children were lucky to be there. And so they needed to abide by my rules and they need to be respectful of the adults around them and also of the business owner, who I understand is trying to make a buck. He doesn't need my kids being a distraction. Not everybody sees the world that way. And an outdoor fire plus a kid who is an invitee who has the highest duty owed to him, regardless of the kids, if the kids fault or not for reaching into the fire and grabbing a, you know, a hot poker or something like that. You're going to be the one that pays for that because the law is going to see that as uh, you having a duty that you didn't execute to the kid. Um, so if you have an outdoor fire, you need to kind of kid-proof it. You need to make sure that you've got barriers to keep people away from the fire and so forth. That's a, part, that's a really good example. It just sort of popped into my head. What about getting robbed? Breweries get robbed, right? All kinds of businesses get robbed. I was checking the news and I saw some stories about some breweries getting robbed. I hope none of you have ever gotten robbed. Also not unforeseeable. Um, what are your instructions to your employees? If an employee shot or gets hurt, they may have a workman's comp claim, right? They may have a workman's comp claim if if the shooting is seen as a hazard incident to employment. Uh, Generally, that is true. In a customer-facing industry, the threat of robbery is a known hazard, particularly in convenience stores and Stores that have a high cash turnover and so forth, but you have—I mean, you breweries have cash turnover, I guess, unless you're cardless. I mean, unless you're cashless and you're a card-only brewery, which really eliminates lowers your risk of being robbed, and that's a factor for you to consider as to whether you want to be cashless or not. Is you make yourself a much less attractive target for robbery? Robbery is a low uh, likelihood and a high incident, like uh, Ron Suskin's old book about low—you know—low probability, high impact events. Um, That's a bad one. It may be a workman's compensation claim, but they also may have civil claim against you, uh, depending on what you tell them about how to react. I am sure there are some brewery owners who would tell their uh, staff to intervene. I'm sure of it. I can think of one right off the top of my head right here in Norfolk where I just believe that the owners would probably not react well to a robbery and try to take things into their own hand out of a... misplaced sense of entitlement and false bravado, let's call it. What does your business insurance policy say about that? Is it directly addressed? If it's not, should it be? That could be a specially negotiated term inside of your uh, business insurance policy. If you're being protected against robbery, uh, the insurance is kind of going to go, why are they raising that? We should look closely into that and look at the crime rates around that particular brewery. Oh, my gosh, look at the heat map. There's lots of property crimes and robberies right around this brewery. We're going to have to jack their insurance rates up. So you need to make a business decision about whether you're willing to pay a higher premium in order to negotiate a special insurance term for, to protect you against robbery, uh, particularly from um, um, injury to your customers or uh, employees. Uh, and these things happen. Right. And a lady went into the church down in um, in uh, Houston in Joel Osteen's church the other day and shot people. Um, and so these and, and a bystander was shot. These things happen. If it can happen in a church, it can certainly happen in a brewery. And the bottom line is it's tempting to say every man is responsible for himself, but in the area of premises liability, that is just not quite true. And being cavalier about safety in the tap room, your parking lot, your warehouses, and so forth can result in real, uh, real financial outlays for you. But really, I really – one of my biggest uh, pieces of advice is you can withstand a lot of financial short-term um, impacts, uh, payouts, and so forth. You can you can withstand a, depending on how financially healthy you are, you can withstand a short-term cataclysmic financial event. What you cannot withstand is a destruction of your brand and your reputation. Because withstanding a cataclysmic financial event means that you're hoping that you're going to continue to make money after the fact to lower the impact of that event. Um, but if you're destroying your brand in the way that you conduct yourself and you're showing care for your customers and your vendors and so forth, that's a bigger impact on your business um moving on to quickly to product liability what if your beer makes a bunch of people sick from contaminants are you disclosing your ingredients so i've had a delicious peanut butter stout on occasion i don't know if that's i don't know if uh brewers think that peanut butter stouts are funny or not i've only had the ones that are mass produced there was one used to be called sweet baby jesus something something i think it was from breckenridge in colorado i think uh and i love oyster stouts um but I don't have a peanut or a shellfish allergy. So it never crosses my mind that I shouldn't worry about that. But you have a lot of customers that have peanut and shellfish allergies. Um, is there enough of the, of the uh, chemical in shellfish in an oyster stout to make a person with a shellfish allergy uh, sick? What if they have a really, really bad allergy? It might make sense to set up a QR code on your bar and have printed backup copies for people who aren't, you know don't have some older people. Some people reject you know smartphones, Um, some older people don't have it gone to smartphones. They just don't have them. They might still have flip phones. So a QR code wouldn't make sense to them, Uh, to have printed backup copies of all your beer ingredients to help patrons avoid beers with allergies and maybe highlight all the allergens and so forth. I might not be telling you anything you don't already know, but it is another way to protect yourself against, um, against those kinds of things. And again, back to insurance, what does your business insurance policy say about that? That might also be a specially negotiated provision that you want to talk to your insurer about. Uh, I'm looking to the right because my notes are on another screen. I'm sorry. I'm not not paying attention to y'all, but I have notes on the other screen. Um, You should note cases have been brought uh, in litigation against uh, brewers holding them accountable for alcohol poisoning. On the theory, the average consumer doesn't know the physiological risk of overconsumption. That sounds silly. Um, Those cases most often um, involve spirits, particularly high proof spirits. But it is not inconceivable that a high ABV beer. Let's say you have an ABV beer that's 10.0, right? Um, and I don't know if I had if I had three 10 ABV beers, I'd be pretty loaded. Um, but I might not appreciate if I didn't know enough about beer. Let's say I was kind of a near beer neophyte, and I didn't know the difference between a four or a five ABV versus a 10 ABV. I might not appreciate just how drunk I could get if I had five, ten ABV beers. There's a woman, a small person, or, or a small man, or a small woman that might—the uh, risk of alcohol poisoning might be there. And some courts have held that the average person doesn't know enough about this, and it's a brewer's obligation to know and to warn. Um, and they just don't know how much beer will get you drunk when that could, could actually kill you or harm you. And again, what does your business insurance policy say about this? if it says nothing you would, might want to think about whether you want to address that particular risk insurance policies aren't one size fits all if you've got a broker that doesn't want to work with you to appreciate and account for specific risks that you have found inside your then you might not have to find a different insurance broker because they don't have to be form contracts um, you if your insurance if your insurance broker is not particularly innovative or not particularly i don't know that you know they're just they're just handing across the same form across the desk for everybody OK, that's fine. You don't have to live with that. There are insurance brokers who understand unique risks and will work with you on doing the actuary work that's necessary for them to find a premium that accounts for um, indemnifying you from that risk. Gram shop laws. These are statutes that can provide a cause of action. In other words, and the ability to be sued against a bar owner for overserving a customer who then injures others afterwards, usually through a DUI accident. Um, I don't I was trying to look and I forgot to look it up, whether a dram shop law could also apply to someone who gets drunk and then engages in violence, like shooting someone, which happens more frequently now than ever in our society. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's definitely um, applies to DUI accidents. Classically, Virginia does not have a dram shop law, but many state laws do. Many states do. What does your state law say on this? For example, Missouri. Missouri requires a plaintiff, the the person suing you, to prove that the bar owner served the individual who caused a mishap, despite noting the person had quote significantly uncorded physical action or significant physical dysfunction. In other words, in order to sue a bar owner under the dram shop law in Missouri, you would have to put the the plaintiff would have to put on evidence of the fact that the person who got was so visibly drunk that everyone would know that he was drunk and shouldn't have been served anymore. So that's a pretty high standard. It's very friendly to bar owners in Missouri. In Texas, the person has to be so obviously intoxicated that he presents a clear danger to himself or to others, kind of the same as the Missouri standard. But in other states are more protective of the plaintiffs in New York and Illinois, maybe not surprisingly, both kind of high lawyer density um, um, jurisdictions in Chicago and New York City. The plaintiff has to make a far less showing only that the intoxication was approximate cause of the injury. That is a really, really high risk in those two states for bar owners. Uh, and and intoxication being approximate cause of injury, that's true every time you serve someone who might be at 0.08 or higher. So um, in if I were a, a brewery owner in New York or Illinois, I would be paying careful attention to that. In Texas and Missouri, I'm a little bit more safe than that. And I'm just using those four states as, as four instances. If you're in Montana, I didn't think to look it up. You know, I couldn't look up 50 states. So that's four, well, five states. Virginia doesn't have one at all. So that's five states covered right there you should take a look at what DRAM uh, laws are and talk to your local lawyer, if you have a business lawyer, about what risks are attendant to the DRAM shop law in your state. Corporate formation. Um, I deal with businesses all the time that don't want to do corporate formations. And if you're a low risk business, um, maybe you can get away with that. For example, I don't know, uh, house cleaners and stuff like that. You're a you, the the odds of you getting sued for performing your duties as a house cleaner are probably pretty low, so low that it might not be worth it for you to form an LLC or, or a stock or non-stock corporation. The purpose of an LLC or a stock or non corporation, many, many people, is the rise in LLCs has been like through the roof. The idea is that you form a separate entity that's not you. It's a separate entity. and 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 that entity is the entity that's conducting business. So if something goes horrifically wrong, the worst thing that can happen is that the business goes bankrupt, and you sell off all the assets, and then you and then, you know, they go as far as they are, and the rest of the debt is discharged in bankruptcy. And certain, um, you know, certain lawsuit judgments can be discharged in bankruptcy. Certain tax obligations can be discharged in bankruptcy. Um, certain, you know, consumer debts or Desk to your vendors can be discharged in bankruptcy. And the idea there is if something goes totally wrong, the business takes the hit, not you personally. Your home is still safe because it's separate from the business. Your cars and your driveway are still safe. Your kids' college fund is still safe. Your retirement investments are still safe because it's the business that went up in flames, not you going up in flames. If you don't take the time to form a separate uh, corporation, you uh, are incurring a colossal risk of putting your own assets uh, in play in a way that could be just a catastrophic loss for you. Um, also, if you do form a business, it is really, really important for you to keep the business separate from your own stuff. Um, keep personal funds and business funds separate. Don't borrow money out of the till and put it in your pocket. Keep those funds separate because evidence of the fact that you are not honoring the corporate formation can be used to, to, to do what's called piercing the corporate veil. And piercing the corporate veil means when a corporation looks and says, that business is not real, that's just a sham. It's really just a person behind the business that's using this thing to try to protect them, but they aren't really honoring the rules that go along with it being a separate entity. Uh, Co-mingling funds is a really important way that a plaintiff could show that your corporate structure is just an empty shell and allows litigant to go after you personally. So it is really, really important to keep things separate. I wouldn't live on a brewery premises for that very reason. Like, you know, something, I I don't know, some businesses have the business downstairs and the apartment upstairs, um, so forth. I don't know if any brewery owners live on their own premises. If you were starting a brewery, it might be tempting to have a little, you know, an RV out back that you're living in to cut expenses and so forth. I think that that's probably pretty risky in terms of showing that there is no separation between the business and you. And it's really important to separate the business from you. All right. Employment law. Are your employees actual employees? Do you have any independent contractors? Are you sure you can tell them apart? Because it's really important to be able to tell them apart. There's a brand new uh, Department of Labor ruled out and that I wrote on. And if you go to my website, which is in the uh, or the, the firm's website and look under our news and blogs, I just wrote a, a, a blog piece on it a few days ago about, honor, about the Department of Labor has a new regulatory interpretation of the Fair Standards Act, where they're giving businesses um, new guidance on how to differentiate employers from independent contractors. It's really important that you do so and maintain clear separation because you owe much less duty to an independent contractor than you do an employee. And if you have an a person that you've classified as an independent contractor, but a court later looks at them or an agency like a, a state labor board looks at them and says, nah, that was really an employee. It doesn't matter what you're calling them. You're treating that person like an employee. For example, you tell them exactly when they need to come to work and exactly when they can leave if you are controlling their every action. So there's independent contractors you could have, um, like, for example, the person who comes and power washes the outside of the brewery, and he comes, and it's really important for you to keep the outside of your brewery clean, because it's part of your brand so this guy comes once a quarter and he power washes the outside of your brewery he's not an employee he's an independent contractor you tell him i need it done in this window when he shows up he does it he does it on his own terms according to quality standards that you have down in your written contract with him about the quarterly power washing and so forth you can make the clear case that that guy's an independent contractor um but if he's on site all the time and you're t- giving him specific tasks also inside your um your warehouse, and he's on on site, you know, four days a week or something like that for some number of hours. You might have accidentally converted him into an employee, which means you have all these other obligations to him. For example, you might have uh, withholding obligations for taxes and FICA and you, uh, um, unemployment insurance obligations to pay, and workers' comp obligations to pay. Um, If your the rest of your employees receive um, certain benefits like profit sharing, he might be able to make a claim for profit sharing at that point. So it is really important to honor that line. Some employees think all they have to do is label the worker as an independent contractor, but it's really more complicated than that. It is really important that you treat them differently. And if you misclassify an employee as an independent contractor, you can have a lot of liabilities. you also need an employment manual probably. I, I write employment manuals for companies all the time uh, in that you need to eliminate uncertainty about what, what, um, and it doesn't apply to your independent contractors, everything with regard to the, your relationship with independent contractors and your written contract with them. An employee manual is different and which you put down policies for the employees that gives them um, standards that they need to follow. Why is that important? Because if you need to discipline or fire an employee, Um, every employee, not every, but many employees who get fired are looking to find some reason to rationalize and strike back at the employer. And the most, uh, the most, um, the most frequent way that they do it is they try to construct some sort of a discrimination claim. So if they're in one of the protected classes, according to race or gender or sexual orientation, national origin or disability, um, you'd better be. Honestly, you better be extra careful with those people. And you, if you need a disciplined employee, you need to have an employment manual that shows the rule that they're violating and documents the fact that they violated the rule over time so that you can show, even though Virginia is an at-will employment state, if you are presented with a with a harassment claim, let's say it's an African-American woman that you had to discipline and then fire, um, and you did so because of malfeasance on the job, habitual uh, tardiness or uh, stealing from the till or some other misconduct with rudeness to customers or something like that. You And that person then comes back and says, Nope, you fired me because you're discriminating against me because of these two protected classes. You need to be able to have evidence in your back pocket that says, No, here's the standard. Here's our tardiness policy. Here's where I disciplined you for the policy and construct a defense to a, a harassment, to a, um, a discrimination claim based on. A rational exercise of your discretion as a uh, business owner and as a supervisor, so that you have a facially neutral um, reason. Even though it's at-will employment, you have to be able to, to you have to be able to knock down the harassment claim. You should not underestimate how willing employees are to try to construct a harassment claim out of out of thin air, uh, and protect yourself accordingly. You need to deal with maltreatment, sexual harassment, race-based harassment, anything like that inside the workplace. Um, There's no such thing as the old boys club. The the frat house culture, and I know that that's a thing in some businesses. Maybe it's a thing in the uh, the bro culture, in certain businesses and so forth. That stuff has to, if you're, the people who engage in that kind of behavior generally don't have anything at stake. Right. They, if the business closes, if your brewery closes, that person won't just go to another brewery and find another job or they'll maybe they'll work outside of the industry. But you're the one who has the most at stake. And so um, you need to deal with that stuff. Like I was t- talking about with Andrew earlier, we had a business here, a, a brewery here in Hampton Roads that had a there were tinges of sexual harassment, tinges of some racial harassment. Um, it was a real bro culture allegedly inside the uh, brewery, Um, and it really cost them reputationally. I don't know if anybody ever made out a legal harassment claim against them, but it burned their reputation really, really badly. And I'd love to see their books about how much business they lost immediately. I think their reputation recovered over time because the owner did take some steps to address it quickly and promptly. In my view, he didn't move fast enough. Uh, and he didn't exactly do the right things, the things that I would have done. But he did enough that I think that it helped salvage his reputation. Uh, my dog's barking. Hey, Patricia. Sorry. Hey. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. My dog can hear my my wife outside, and uh, so it drives him crazy. Sorry about that. Um, so – uh, you need to do everything you can if that happens to, to establish and reestablish a healthy culture and show your customers that you take these things seriously. People care about this stuff. There's a there's a you know a thing in business now called corporate social responsibility. And we what we've labeled, we've labeled that as we've, we've put a label on it. Hold on just a second. Patricia. Really sorry about that. My dogs are, um, <laughs> they they just—they won't. Here, come here, pop up. Say hi. Say hi. Okay. Yes, I know you're a good girl. Go. So um, guarding the brand is, is kind of everything. Like I said, you businesses can withstand short-term um, inconveniences and so forth. But the brand is really, really important. And this company almost burned their brand to the ground. They did enough to rescue the brand. And over time, I think people either forgave them or forgot about it. It sort of faded into into um, obscurity. It could have quickly, I think, killed that business if, he, if they had not taken the action they had taken. Again, I would have taken a little bit more aggressive action than they did. But I think they did enough to save the business. But the, if that, that's even a question, that's a really, really bad. And that's a risk that you don't want to... Um, deal with. Um, I have two more things, intellectual property, uh, your recipes, uh, your logos, your can and your bottle art, all these things can be protected at some minimal cost and effort. And they might be really, really vital to your brand. Um, I I know some breweries that I know their can art is a really, really big deal. And quite frankly, there's a couple of breweries that I buy their beer because I dig their can art. There's one brewery down in Kempston, North Carolina, called Mother Earth, and I love their – they also have uh, – they reinvest some of their profits back in uh, sustainable and environmentally friendly initiatives. So um, I really dig that brewery, and their can art is really, really beautiful, and I think it's really – it's it causes me to buy their beer when I can get it. So it's in Kinston, so it's four hours away, but um, occasionally I can find it at Total Wine here and so forth. That is a cool brand, and their can art is really uh, essential to their – I can guarantee you all of their can art and all of their beer names and so forth have been trademarked in a way that allows them to protect them. So – The real cost there comes with enforcement. If you're going to protect your marks, you have to understand that at some point somebody's going to step on them and you have to be prepared to defend it, to send a message. So you have to, um, you know, there's certain companies that uh, when their trademark gets infringed, they go to the mat right away. Disney is one of them. They are really aggressive about about protecting their uh, intellectual property. And as a result. Only the stupidest people um, try to infringe on Disney's intellectual property because they know that Disney's going to come after them. And it's going to be a really, really expensive uh, for them in the long run. So you have to be able to spend the money up front a little bit of time to, set, to establish a reputation. That, no,pe these guys are serious about their intellectual property. Don't do it because they will come after you. Um, and um, you're going to have to pay your costs, e- except in the most egregious circumstances, because there's, in the United States, um, there's just not a whole lot of legal fee shifting. There's a handful of statutes where that happens, where you can get the if, the, if you prevail against the other party, they have to pay your uh, litigation fees. That is designed deliberately to encourage litigation because uh, the legislature or Congress has decided this is really important. We want people to go to court and enforce this thing. Uh, but most of the time you have to pay your own way. So you have to consider the cost of enforcement against how important your brand is. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about, let me see if the last thing, yeah, customer data protection and cybersecurity, they're more important than ever. You got to make sure your business insurance covers data breaches and use a reputable IT company, not, uh, you know, not some guy operating an IT company out of his garage with a real IT company that has uh, state-of-the-art uh, protections for your cyber, for your data. Customer data is being increasingly protected, especially for interstate sales and more and more states are uh, uh, enacting data protection laws. California was, uh, Um, right out of the gate. They were actually in front of the European Union in terms of having a really, really comprehensive and aggressive data protection statute. Um, But California's commerce invades the rest of the states so thoroughly because their economy is so huge that you have to worry about the CCPA um, in if you're doing business with California for sure. Uh, Virginia, surprisingly, con- little old purple kind of conservative Virginia, certainly conservative from a business culture Virginia, um, was the second state in the union to have um, a data protection statute. Now, it's not very powerful at all. It's a shell of what they have in California, but it's there and it's a baseline and it's going to grow. It, it, it's going to grow over time. There's dozens of, of data protection laws that are pending in state legislatures. I think the third state to do it was uh, Connecticut. A fourth state might have been Kentucky or somebody like that. It's just surprising states that are, are popping up that are really concerned about protecting consumer data. And I think you're going to see that more and more and more and more and more over the next five years as these uh, statutes get traction inside of state legislatures. I don't think you're ever going to see a federal statute. Just we just can't get our the United States. It, it would be nice if we had one federal standard because then it would simplify things for businesses so much. Uh, but the fact that we have a patchwork quilt of 50 standards or 51, 52 counting Puerto Rico. Um, 52 different standards, it's it's make work for lawyers because the rest of us have to sort out what the obligations are state to state and deliver advice all the time. I'm happy to do that. But I do know that it would be in our best interest if there were one federal standard the way there was the way there is in the European Union. Um, And I frankly, it's it's much more effective in the European Union because the standard is the same in France as it is in Poland, as it is in Italy. And for inter-European commerce, that's a really good thing. Uh, finally, you also need a privacy policy to disclose when you're collecting and storing your customers' data, whether it is at uh, point of sale or whether it's through internet sales and so forth. If you're going to sell that data, you have to disclose and consider whether you can make enough money to justify upsetting your loyal regulars. If I went to a brewery and learned that um, a brewery was selling my data to others, um, I, d- I don't get upset about that. And like face, like online red merchants most of the time but a brewer to me a brewery is a place of trust it's a low i i see it as local and communal and if i found out that my brewery was selling my personal data i'd probably not go back to that brewery um that's just me uh maybe other people would react to it differently and i'm not hypersensitive to that like i know that you know, I know that Alibaba is selling my, if I were to go to Alibaba, they're selling my my, my data at the rapid rate. I know that Google is selling my data at the rapid rate. I signed up for that. It's in their terms of use. I know that. I, I accept that because Google is so useful to me. I accept that term because I couldn't live without Google in my life at this point. So I, I accept that. I just don't have to accept it for my brewer. You should consider that and think about that. So uh, please feel free to drop any questions for, but I know I've been going nonstop for 50, uh, 53 minutes now. Um, thank you for indulging me and listening. If you have any questions, please send them or drop them in right now. If you don't have any questions, oh, uh, you just, I'm looking at comments. Let me look at the private chat, here, see if Andrew told me anything. You're entertaining. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, If you have any comments, send them right now. If you don't, I think Andrew dropped my website, the firm's website and my firm email, uh, send it to me. If you're in one of the three states we cover and you're looking for somebody to, to help you out with your stuff, we're happy to talk about terms for representation and so forth. If you're in a different state and you are looking for help, please reach out. I am happy to refer you. I'm not going to refer you to just any old body. If I if it's a state that I don't have, like I don't have a lot of contacts in Utah, or no, that's a bad example. Because of, uh, <laughs> I don't have a lot of contacts in Wyoming. And if I if I don't, I'll tell you that. Um, and and uh, But I do have a lot of contacts, certainly east of the Mississippi and across the southern, all the way to California. Big networks of lawyers of people that I practiced with over the years, uh, people that I served with in the Marine Corps that are now uh, out in the world in their own firms and businesses and so forth. Um, as we spread, you know, the Marine Corps from all fifty states. So I got people that are all over the place that I would trust to find the local lawyers to help you out. What are the things that a brewery and planning can, should consider in the planning stage? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, for sure, um, business uh, business formation, making sure that you have formed your business in a way that will protect you earlier rather than later that your assets are inside the business and that you're literally treating the business as separate from your personal life. The business can pay you a salary of course. And and you need to set that out somewhere that if you're going to have the business pay you $75,000 in the first year, I have no idea if that's even a realistic number. I I never started a a brewery. So again, forgive me if I, if I'm using unrealistic numbers or whatever, maybe taking $75,000 out of the brewery in the first year might be impossible to do. I don't know, but you pay you a salary, but that's different from, from just, rating the corporate uh the, the businesses funds whenever you need money. That's different. Um so you need to establish it that way. Uh consider consider if you can get away with in your your bar staff is probably gonna have to be employees, but consider what functions within your business you actually can use for independent contractors. You might have to pay a little more in the short term for independent contractors, but you're avoiding other increased liabilities in the long term. Uh, um, you're, you're, you're avoiding a lot of benefits and all the other administration that you have to do for employees. Um, what else? I would be very concerned about insurance. Make sure that you have a broker that is flexible, not just a one size fits all business broker, but someone that will work with you about the unique risks that you have. For example, I'll you go back to the example that I used earlier about robbery. Let's say your business gets robbed. And you're in a part of town that where that is likely to happen. We have some breweries here that are up to some higher crime neighborhoods. If I were a brewery owner in some of these breweries that back up to some higher crime neighborhoods, I'd I'd be pretty concerned about that. I would absolutely go cashless in that circumstance. Um, and I don't. You make a judgment for your own. I don't. Five years ago, was it practical to go cashless? No. Is it practical to go cashless now? everybody pays with debit cards and credit cards. Now Uh, my parents don't; they use, you know, they still use cash, but they're in rural North Carolina where cash is still king. But in a, uh, in a, in an urban area like Hampton Roads or Richmond or New Orleans or St. Louis or whatever, you might be able to afford to go, uh, to go cashless, which reduces your likelihood of being robbed and so forth. What will your insurance broker work with you on that? Uh, Will they cover you for the unique, um, um, unique, if your brewery is a river or something like that, what is your flood flood uh, coverage? Um, what are your deductibles and so forth? Those are the kind of things I'd be thinking about uh, off off the uh, right out of the gate. Intellectual property is probably something you can kick the can down the road on that. No pun intended. Uh, maybe that's not super important to you as you're getting your brewery off the ground. Maybe it is. Maybe again, if you're Mother Earth down in Kingston. I, I'm telling you, their, their can art is really appealing, visually appealing to people who care about sustainability. And so they, that might be one of their, in their business plan, their intellectual property of their can art might, or their bottle art and, and, and they they have cool, like, Tree, you know, tree of life type things, that might be really, really important to their branding, and they think they need to, to protect that from the outset. There's other other breweries that maybe that's not true. They don't, they're just not as important. I know some breweries around right here that have some fairly pedestrian names for their brewery and some fairly pedestrian um, iconography and so forth. So that's probably less important for them. And there's cost associated with protecting IP. So bear that in mind. It, you got to figure out the balance between what you can gain by protecting it versus not. All right. Hey, Andrew, we're at one hour. Exactly. Should we shut it down? Can you, are you coming back in? I don't know if you're going to come back in or not. Wait. Let me hey, but I'd love I to come, come back, in. back in. Yeah. I always I love, 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 love talking to someone, someone on you know, the internet who's less than a mile from where I'm currently at. Always a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing I I those people crash course today and things people should consider. It's my pleasure. And anything else, please, uh, Drop it out in the comments. Or hit me on email. Go to the firm website. No matter what, go to our firm website. There's a bunch of stuff in our blogs. I've been writing a lot over the past three or four months on different stuff that business. some of it might not be appropriate to you. Some of it might uh, see what you can learn out of there. Honestly, you can go if you go to a lot of different law firms uh, sites and just sort of poke around. There's a lot of lawyers out there giving free um good business advice in their firm blogs and their firm newsletters and things like that. You really can learn a lot. Um, lawyers have more to do with business than maybe some people appreciate. Like I said, a business is at its, at its core. It is a collection of contracts. So um, there's a lot of stuff that you can learn about business planning uh, from just poking around people's websites. if there's anything that I can help you with, um, you know, pop me an email there and I will either, uh, you know, if we don't have a attorney-client relationship, I will answer the question as best as I can. If you're looking for a lawyer, our firm is, we're in business. <laughs> and if you're somewhere else where we're not authorized to practice, I will give you a good referral. And if I can't give you a good referral, I will tell you that. And Butch, one more time, what's your email? It's in, uh, well, I've got it in the private chat. It's rbracknell at C, it's not an easy one to remember. It's rbracknell at cwm-law.com. So can you move that over? To, is it in the comments? It's in the comments. It's it is in the, in, Andrew in, put it in the comments. If anybody wants, to get it. Yeah, it's over there. Well, awesome, Butch. It was a pleasure learning from you at the front row seat, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks again. Yeah, talk to you soon, brother. Appreciate you. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening and being an important part of our community. Please hit the subscribe button to stay on top of more sessions that can help you grow as a craft beer professional. And join us for more conversations in our community on Facebook. We appreciate you. Cheers.